Please take your copies of God's Word and turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We'll be this morning in verses 9 through 15. But I'd like to read the passage in context. We'll begin reading in verse 5 as we continue in our series of sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray once more before our consideration of the Word. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so appropriate that we would sing that last song, Glorify Your Name. Indeed, we understand that to be one of the petitions of this great prayer, hallowed be your name. Father, we pray that in this sermon and over the coming weeks, we would better understand your will for prayer as expressed here in this passage. We pray particularly this morning that you would help us to understand better, perhaps better than many of us yet have, what it means to come to you as our Father who is in heaven. May this message, our consideration of this passage, help us to enter in all the fullness of relationship that you intend for us in the context of prayer with you, O Lord God, as our Heavenly Father. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Almost from the moment, what's called the Lord's Prayer, Almost from the moment it surfaced in the form we have it here in Matthew's Gospel, it began to be regarded as one of the most basic and foundational sayings from our Lord in all of the Christian faith. It began to shape the private prayers of the Lord's disciples. It shaped the teaching that was given to new converts. It shaped the corporate prayers of the church. Uh, Almost immediately, the Lord's Prayer made its way into early church liturgies all over the Mediterranean region and eventually all over the Roman Empire. And within a couple of centuries, the Lord's Prayer had become one of the most recognized and cherished passages in all of Christian Scripture. As the centuries unfolded, the Lord's Prayer continued to be prominent in the piety and liturgy of the church. It would remain central in both the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, even after uh, those bodies split from one another. Uh, Whatever things those two communions differed over, uh, the foundational importance of the Lord's Prayer was not one of them. Uh, In the Reformation era of the 16th century, the Protestants went to work reforming the church's doctrine according to the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But of the manifold reforms they put forward, unseating the Lord's Prayer from its place of priority and prominence was not one of them. The Lord's Prayer continued to shape private and public worship, personal and corporate piety. In many of the Reformed catechisms and uh, works of theology, three resources in particular continued to be regarded as especially foundational for Christian discipleship. They were the Apostles' Creed, 
the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. If you were to visit uh, many of the Reformed Anglican churches, the Church of England churches, churches that were built in the 1500s or the 1600s or the 1700s, if you were to enter those churches, you would find on the wall typically those three uh, resources, the Apostles' Creed, what we confess, the Ten Commandments, how we are to live, the Lord's Prayer, how we are to approach God in prayer and in worship. In the modern period, the Lord's Prayer has made its way into the liturgies of practically every denomination. The prayer is prayed daily across the globe, especially on Sundays, days like today. It has often been the first passage that children have memorized. It has frequently been the last words of believing men and women before they meet the Lord of the prayer in death. Wherever Christians have gone in the world, the Lord's prayer has gone with them. Christians have prayed this prayer at their bedsides, around the dinner table, in churches, in prisons, in hospitals, on ships, on airplanes, on the eve of battle, in the wake of natural disasters, in practically every conceivable context. The words of this prayer have been offered to God again and again and again. The prominence of the Lord's Prayer in the history of Christianity, and we could say in modern Western civilization, can hardly be overstated. We're coming this morning to what easily is one of the top two or three most recognizable passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Now, even as I rehearse that history and context, it's important for us to remember that the Lord's Prayer is not like a magical incantation. It's not like a rote formula. Rather, it is an intelligent prayer to be offered up from the believing heart through Jesus Christ to God, the Father of His people, who is in heaven. My aim in the next three sermons this week and the two weeks to follow is to help us to better understand this prayer, to better love this prayer, and to better learn how to pray it from the heart. I do believe the Lord's Prayer should be a central feature of our Christian piety individually, in our families, and in our corporate life together. It should indeed shape our Christianity. It tells us how it is that we're to come to God, how we're to approach Him, how we're to pray. It tells us what things matter to God and what things ought to matter to us. So may God help us in our consideration of this great passage, this great prayer over the next few weeks. This morning, I want to frame our time around two questions. Two questions this morning. The first question is, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? Simply put, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? What is the Lord's Prayer? And then secondly, what is communicated by the phrase, our Father in heaven? What do we have in the Lord's Prayer? What is communicated by the phrase, our Father in heaven? First of all, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? And if you're taking notes, we'll consider three things we have in the Lord's Prayer this morning. If you just want a word, those three words will be revelation, guide, and teaching. Revelation, guide, and teaching. First of all, the Lord's Prayer represents a pivotal moment of revelation in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It represents a pivotal moment of revelation in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. I remember particularly what's gone before the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not thinking as much with what comes after, but what comes before these words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus the Christ has come into the world. He is revealed as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the agent of divine redemption and salvation. He has burst onto the scene now in the fullness of time in the fulfillment of the Scriptures. God's appointed man, God's own Son, God's agent of redemption the coming king, the coming prophet, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is here. And his coming is associated with the dawning of a new kingdom, the dawning of a new age. John the Baptist in chapter 3 announces this new kingdom, that it is dawning, that it has come, that it is even now upon us. And then Jesus in John 3 comes to be baptized by John. And in his baptism, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus and remains on him. And we hear the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus himself then begins to announce the coming of this new kingdom in himself. He begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He begins to show forth the power of the kingdom in his miracles. They are bringing uh, many with diseases who need healing. They're bringing them to him, and Jesus shows forth the kingdom's power in healing these men and women from all their diseases. All of this occurs before the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount itself, in Matthew 5 through 7, we have Jesus' program for this new and dawning kingdom. The king is speaking, and he's announcing to us the ethics of his kingdom. And Jesus, the king of this new kingdom, he does not cite other rabbis or prophets. He speaks on his own authority. He does not say, thus saith the Lord, but I say unto you. He speaks with peerless authority, authority that astonishes the crowds because, as we'll read in chapter 7, he spoke not as their scribes. No, he spoke rather like God himself. And he, in this sermon, announces the royal law of his new kingdom, and he takes up the most important subjects in all the world. There has never been loftier teaching in human history than the teaching Jesus, the king of a new kingdom, the coming Christ, now gives to his disciples. And right in the heart of this sermon, in the very middle of the sermon, which in Hebrew literature would have been the most significant part of an address, we think maybe the introduction or the conclusion is sometimes most important. In Hebrew literature, it would be what you find in the center. Right here in the center of this sermon, we have this revelation about how we're to pray, about how we're to approach God. What's my point? We should all be impressed with the magnitude of what Jesus is doing here. In Him, the kingdom has come. And how does He want His disciples, the citizens of this new kingdom over which He is king, to address God in prayer? Jesus is here revealing to us how He wants His people to engage in that most basic of Christian activities, that most basic act of Christian devotion, the one who was in the bosom of the Father, the one through whom all prayer will be offered. The one who John tells us, as Jesus says there, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way to the Father. This one is telling us, revealing to us, how we should pray. We should be lost on us the moment of revelation that this is. I can remember uh, one time trying to get in touch with someone who was quite famous, very well known, a man of great eminence and great importance, the kind of guy someone like me would never really have access to. And somehow I had an in with a colleague of his. And uh, I pursued an email conversation correspondence with his colleague, and I said, I'm trying to get in touch with Mr. So-and-so. Do you think he'd, he'd hear me? And, and, and that man emailed me back and he said, if you want to get his attention, be brief and be clear in your request. And so when I wanted to reach out to this great eminent man, I was brief and I was clear in my request. Well, it's an imperfect illustration, but what I mean to say is uh, Jesus, who was with God in the beginning, Jesus, who himself was in the bosom of the Father, the one who came to us incarnate, descending from courts of splendor and glory, who was at the Father's side, he is revealing to us how to address the Father. This is a moment of great revelation. Okay, it's a matter of revelation. Secondly, the Lord's Prayer represents an inspired guide to believing prayer. It's revelation. It's a guide. It represents an inspired guide to believing prayer. I say the Lord's Prayer is a guide because Jesus says, doesn't he, pray then like this. Here's a guide for you. Pray then in this way, in this manner, like this. He's giving us a guide for believing prayer. Now, as a guide, first, it may be prayed literally word for word. And indeed, I think we should pray the Lord's Prayer word for word. We often do so in our assemblies here at Emmanuel. But as a guide also, it can secondly be used as a broad outline for prayer. I think both uses are legitimate uses of this guide to prayer that Jesus gives us. First, I think it can serve as a prayer we pray literally word for word. Think of this. When you pray these words, you can be certain if you pray them with faith, if you pray them intelligently, you are praying precisely in accord with the revealed will of God for prayer. When I take to my lips these petitions, I am praying precisely in accord with the will of God, precisely as the Lord Jesus himself has called us to pray. What's more, as we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we are uniting ourselves, our hearts, with brothers and sisters around the world praying the very same petitions. And maybe you've noticed in this prayer, it covers a remarkable amount of ground, doesn't it? There's very little, if we're praying this prayer intelligently, if we understand what these petitions mean, and I hope we'll understand better after these few sermons, 
But if we pray these petitions, there's very little in our lives and in the kingdom and in the world uh, that is not covered. Most everything is covered in these six short petitions in this prayer. And therefore, it's an excellent guide to pray word for word at times, privately and in our corporate gatherings. But furthermore, second, uh, the prayer is a guide. When I say that, it could be used as a broad outline, used as an outline. Uh, in, in that sense, it might be like uh, the outline that I have before me. I don't prepare like full manuscripts word for word. Uh, rather, I have an outline before me, and I might have a point, and I might have things that I want to emphasize and highlight, and then I will expound upon those things. I think it's perfectly legitimate, for example, to go to God in the context of the guide we have in the Lord's Prayer and to say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then to say to the Lord, Lord, in this or that way, your will is not being upheld. And I pray that in this family or in this church or in this community, we would see your will better followed in this or that specific way. We pray to God, forgive us our debts. And we may then list particular sins we've committed against God, ways we've transgressed his law. You see, we use it as a guide. And under these broad headings, we then bring to God more specific material in both ways. I think the prayer ought to be used as a guide for our prayers. All right, third and finally, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? It's a pivotal moment of revelation. It's an inspired guide to believing prayer. Thirdly, the short version is it's teaching. The longer version is the Lord's Prayer represents the clearest and most direct teaching we have on prayer in all the Bible. It represents the clearest and most direct teaching we have on prayer in all the Bible. In the version of the Lord's Prayer we're given in Luke chapter 11, the prayer is presented there with slightly different language, and there it is prompted by the question of one of the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. Of course, this whole Sermon on the Mount that we have in Matthew 5 through 7 is given to us as teaching. It's discipleship from our Lord. The Lord is teaching us how to live, and here he is teaching us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer is introduced as a matter of teaching. Friends, I think this alone gives it a special place in the Scriptures in terms of what we're told about prayer in the Bible. Certainly, we have commands to pray in numbers of places. We have many examples of prayer in the Bible. The Psalter, in many ways, just a compilation of many prayers. But here we have actual discipleship on prayer. Like, how do I do it? What do I say? Here we are taught in a very direct and focused way, how it is we ought to pray. The Lord's Prayer is the clearest and most direct teaching we have on prayer in the Bible. Now, isn't it interesting that the Bible assumes and Jesus assumes we as the Lord's people need to be taught how to pray? We need to be taught how to pray aright. I don't know about you, but especially as a young Christian, I did not find prayer intuitive. Uh, and, and so questions would occur to me. How, how do I pray? What do I say? What petitions do I bring? What manner of address should I give to God? He has many names in the Scriptures, as you know, and how should I address Him? And what things should get the focus? And, and, and how exactly should I make my petitions known to God? All kinds of questions about prayer. Maybe you're here this morning. You still have these sorts of questions. Well, the good news is Jesus here is discipling us in prayer. He's teaching us. He's drawing us close. Saying, Here's the way. Here's the manner in which. I want you to pray to God. The Lord intends, through the Lord's Prayer, to teach us how to pray. And with love and care and condescension, he recognizes that we need to be taught. And not only does he tell us how to address God, and not only does this prayer give us some of the words to say, in this prayer we should all observe Jesus is teaching us what ought to be the priorities in our prayers. Of what things matter to God and what things ought to matter to ourselves. And so we see in the prayer there's the hallowing of God's name that's emphasized, the kingdom coming, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and matters of our daily sustenance, and matters of our forgiveness and our forgiveness of others. These are things that should be maybe uppermost in our minds. Jesus tells us these are the things that really matter. These are the things that should consume your mind and heart and words as you come to God in prayer. Thus, I think we should all make ourselves very well acquainted with each of these petitions and what is meant by them. What are we saying to God? 
when we pray, thy kingdom come. What are we saying to God when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? These are the things God wants us to bring to him, and therefore we ought to understand what it is we're saying. And by the way, I do think this is a very good way to assess our own prayers and to evaluate them. Just think of your last two or three or four or five prayers. What are the burdens and the concerns and the priorities that have consumed your mind and heart? And how do they map on the Lord's Prayer? Is your mind and your heart consumed with the hallowing of God's name? Is it consumed with the concerns of His kingdom? Is it consumed with dependence on Him for daily provision? Do you go to Him and repent of your sins and seek His forgiveness day by day? These are the things we are to pray to God. The Lord's Prayer represents the clearest and most direct teaching Excuse me, we have on prayer in all the Bible. Just a quick caveat before we leave this first point, first question. It must be said that the Lord's Prayer is not exhaustive. Uh, It doesn't tell us everything that we might pray to God, nor does it instruct us in everything about prayer. And notice in the Lord's Prayer, we're never told at any point to pray in Jesus' name. Of course, that's a major aspect of New Covenant prayer. I think it's certainly assumed, but it's not forthrightly stated. We do indeed need to go beyond the Lord's Prayer, and there's more that we might learn about prayer and study about prayer and bring to God in prayer, but not less. I think any consideration of the subject of prayer in Scripture should start here with our Lord's most basic teaching on prayer. Okay, that's the summary of what we have in the Lord's Prayer. But now I want to ask a second question. Okay, second question for us to consider this morning. Let's look at the prayer itself. What is communicated by that phrase, our Father in heaven? What is communicated by that phrase, our Father in heaven? Look, if you would, at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. It doesn't say the hypocrites, as it did in other places here. It says the Gentiles, the pagans. How would they try to reach their gods? Well, they'd heap up phrase after phrase. They think, well, maybe if we say many words, many of the things back to our gods, they will eventually hear us. And Jesus is saying, you don't go to your God in that way. No, the relationship is very different than the relationship of these pagans to their God. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Jesus is telling His disciples, remember this is a matter of revelation. Jesus is telling His disciples, when you address God in prayer, of all the many names were given for God in the Scriptures, This is the way Jesus wants us to address God, our Father in heaven. Uh, Last time I I made the observation uh, that within the first 18 verses of chapter 6, you have 10 references to God as the heavenly Father of His people, as the Father who is in heaven. And I made the statement that you won't find 18 verses in the Old Testament with that many references to God as Father. You won't find 18 chapters. You won't find 18 books. In fact, in the entire Old Testament, you will not find as many references to God as the Father of His people who is in heaven. The Jews were not accustomed to thinking of God as their Father. There's two in some places. Uh, God is said to be the father of Israel, like the nation. Israel is his son, in a sense. Uh, And more than that, in other places, God is compared to a father. We read one such uh, statement in Psalm 103. uh, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to us. But there we don't call him father. It's a a metaphor. Is it a simile or whatever you, you kids would know better than me? Using like or as, whichever one that is. God is said to be like a father as a father. He behaves in a certain way as a father, but the Jews of Jesus' day would not have been accustomed to addressing God in this way. And therefore, the various ideas that might fill our minds or should fill our minds when we think of God's fatherhood would not have been filling their minds as they address God in prayer. But now Jesus reveals for my new covenant people, those who come to God through me, His Son, through the Christ, this is how you're to address Him. This is the Christian name for God. Our Father, who is in heaven. 
This designation of God as our Father in heaven is meant to open to us a world of ideas. We can't consider all the various ideas that should be in our minds, but I want to focus on three in the time that remains. The three ideas that should be at the heart as we consider God as our Father, as we approach Him as our Father who is in heaven. Three ideas at the heart of this designation for God. Three things that are communicated by the phrase our Father in heaven. Number one, it is meant to communicate a sense of fatherly care, intimacy, and love. The designation our Father in heaven is meant to communicate a sense of fatherly care, intimacy, and love. The Bible in many places recognizes certain traits that are characteristic of fathers, or at least ought to be characteristic of fathers. One such example again is Psalm 103. What do we see there? As a father shows compassion on his children. What's being revealed? Fathers natively ought to be inclined toward compassion. That marks them. That is characteristic of the relationship. Compassion, pity, tenderness, warmth. That is to be characteristic of what it means to be a father. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, we'll read of the father who delights to give good gifts to his children. What's characteristic of fathers, or at least what ought to be characteristic of fathers, it is that they delight to be benevolent to their kids. They delight to give good gifts to their children. Uh, the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 compares himself to a father among the Thessalonians. And what's at the heart of the image there? It is bringing the children close and giving them instruction like a father and giving them exhortation and giving them encouragement, speaking to them as a father would his children. Intimacy and instruction and closeness is at the center of the image there. In all these images of a father, what is being emphasized? It is care, affection, warmth, intimacy, closeness, benevolence, and love. These are the traits that are to be characteristic of a father, and they are characteristic of God as our father. Now listen, I know for some of you, when you think of your earthly father, these maybe are the last words that would come to your mind to describe him. And so when you hear that God is revealed as father, and this is the primary way in which we're to conceive of God and experience our relationship with him, that word does not fill you with the sense of wonder, oh, the sense of safety, the sense of stability, the sense of affection and warmth and tenderness that it's meant to fill you with. But here's what I hope you can do, and here's what I hope you can recognize. Your father, your earthly father, if he was cruel and severe and heavy-handed, he was a poor father, and he was a broken father, and he was not what a father should be. I suspect all of us here know that intuitively, maybe even especially those who had cruel and heavy-handed fathers. But I ask you, how do you know that? How do you know that your father wasn't what he should have been? Because this is the proper image of what a father should be. Every cruel, severe, heavy-handed, and unloving father is exposed to be so because of this picture of what a father ought to be. You know that father was bad precisely because this father is good. Uh, you see here the standard for what a father ought to be. You see how your father falls short. And so rather than allowing your bad and broken father to become an obstacle to you coming to God as your heavenly father, rather let it become an incentive to come to him and to experience his fatherhood in ways your earthly father could never give it to you. One of the saddest things I talked about the Archbishop of York last week who recently said, you know, we should have second thoughts about addressing God as our father because for a lot of people, the father relationship is very problematic. Not only is that man expressly going against what the Scriptures say we ought to believe with respect to God, but he's denying those poor and broken people who had bad earthly fathers anything better. They could have God as their Father in heaven, and in all the ways their Father failed them, they could have a perfect, 
loving, kind, compassionate, tender, Father who loves them more than any father in this world could possibly love them. Our Heavenly Father is perfect in His care for us. He is perfect in His love, in His compassion, in His tenderness. And He wants to bring all of us who are His children into the sphere of the warmest and most affectionate kind of intimacy as children to a tender Father. Of all the ways that we are to think about God and conceive of our relationship with Him, this is the chief way we're to see Him. We are meant to know Him personally as our Father. And fatherly care, intimacy, and love are meant to be at the heart of the relationship. In the New Testament, this represents the acme of revelation about the personality of God. Who is God? This is at the heart of New Testament revelation about Him. And this is why J.I. Packer, I've quoted this quote many times, this is why J.I. Packer makes so much of this idea. If you've been coming here for any number of months or years, you've heard me share this quote many times. I need to share it again with you. It's so good. J.F. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father, is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The revelation to the believer that God is his Father is, in a sense, the climax of the Bible. That God is Father and that he relates to us on the terms of fatherly care, intimacy, and love is meant to be the controlling thought in our relationship with God. It's meant to be definitive for us in how we approach God. It's to fill our minds and our experience and our hearts as we come to God in prayer. Now, before leaving this point, let me pose a question to you. What effect should this revelation about God, that He is Father, what effect should it have upon us psychologically and emotionally when we come to God in prayer? And I recognize even as I ask that question, that makes some of you like really uncomfortable. It's very sentimental and feely, psychology and emotions and feelings. I want doctrine in my head when I come to God. Well, I want doctrine too. And I want doctrine that makes me feel all kind of ways. Doctrine that informs my affections. Doctrine that registers precisely at the level of my psyche, my heart, my feelings, my experience. So I ask you again, what effect should this way of addressing God and knowing God have upon us psychologically and emotionally when we come to Him in prayer? It's meant to. First, it should fill us with a sense of stability and security and safety. I'm safe with my father. I was at the pool yesterday with Dom and Cam, teaching them how to swim. The goal at the Waterford pool, they have an assignment. They've got to swim to the rope on the deep end and back, and then they, they will get a prize whenever that's achieved. And so we were working on that yesterday. They swim to the rope, and they get right now about five feet on the way back, and then they start to flounder. And what do kids do in the water when they're floundering? They start to panic and they get scared. But when their dad comes and wraps his arms under them and bears them up, what do they feel? <sighs> Safety, stability, security. My father's here. I'm going to be okay. That's the feeling we ought to have in the presence of our father. He doesn't come to me as an adversary. I don't come to one who's going to crush me. I come to one who wants to make me safe. He doesn't want to leave me in doubt about his love. No, he wants me to be stable and secure. Second, this reality should fill us with the confidence that we are loved. It doesn't honor God's fatherhood uh, to think that his love for us is provisional. We're not trespassing on his character 
to believe that he delights in us, that he wants us, that he treasures us, that his affections are toward us. Some of you, I know, especially struggle with this. Maybe you grew up in homes where you always had to wonder, am I loved? At the heart of this conception of God as our Father, this reality that He is our Father, is the fact that He does love us and that we never need to be in doubt of it. In fact, by faith we believe, we know, we have the assurance we're deeply loved of God. And He wants us to live always in this confidence that His heart is for us, that those He saves are His delight. What Father here is hoping that his kids right now are wondering whether or not he loves them. If any father here is thinking in that way, he's a cruel and severe and broken father. Now, as fathers, we want our children to live in the security and stability and confidence of our love, assured of our commitment to them. Third, it should bring to us the awareness that we are under God's benevolent care. This God who is my Father is working all things for my good. My good, my safety, my health, my prosperity, my flourishing, my eternal life, they are always in His mind. If I am His child, there is never a moment when I am out from under His good purposes. His care, His love, His good providence toward me. He will work all things together for my good. We confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, not one hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father who is in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. My Father who is in heaven has at all times my good in His mind. Well, that was just the first idea. This designation, our Father in heaven, is meant to communicate a sense of fatherly care, intimacy, and love. More quickly, number two, it is meant to communicate a sense of free and open access. Free and open access. One of the things the Bible emphasizes with respect to fathers again and again in Old Testament passages and in the New is that they want their children to come to them. Fathers want their children to come to them. They invite their children into their presence, and they want to embrace them and take them up. They want to show compassion on them. They delight to give good gifts to their children, to bless them with good things. They delight in their children, and they want them to come. It's a motif frequently emphasized in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, this idea of children accessing and coming to their father. And that kind of affection and delight that fathers have for their children, it's meant to be an invitation to free and open access to God. Now, even as I say that, that we're to enjoy free and open access to God, I do not mean that we're to come to God on the terms of a kind of chummy familiarity. Okay, so my Father God who is in heaven is not my buddy. He's not my peer. Okay, we're not on the same plane. I don't come to him as some sort of small being or someone who's you know, on my plane or something like that. That's not what I'm advocating for at all. Casual and careless and carefree thoughts of God, that kind of, you know, hey, dad sort of thing, is not the kind of familiarity and open and free access that we're to experience in God's presence. But we are to experience free and open access Nonetheless, He does want us to come to Him as real children to a real Father, and He wants us to enjoy access to Him that's wide open. So we read Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Don't fall back. Don't withdraw. Don't retreat. That's not the spirit we've received as God's children. No, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. Abba is like Papa. It's a term of affection. It's a term of access. It's the kind of word you would, you would be attuned as a father to hear in that exact tone, in that exact timber, that cry of Abba. That's my child. And I hear when they cry. 
Now, what is this passage revealing? We're not to think God is holding out on us. And we're not to think God is somehow honored by us withdrawing from Him or retreating from Him, maybe even especially when we sin against God. No, we don't fall back in a spirit of fear. No, He's our Father. And we come with the spirit of adoption in our hearts. We're meant to have free and open access to God. We're meant to come to Him, to cry to Him, to experience access to Him. We're to approach Him. We're meant to come near. We're meant to enter in. And friends, I'll just say, uh, I think J.I. Packer is again insightful on this point in his chapter on adoption. In that book, Knowing God, that I've commended many times, he makes the point that we should not conceive of the greatest blessing our salvation affords us as justification. Justification is a great blessing. It's a great blessing to be counted right in the courtroom of God, to know that my sins are not held against me, but that the judge, through what Jesus has done, has declared me to be pardoned, forgiven, free. That is a great blessing indeed. We should sing about it. We should thank God for it. We should live always in the awareness that we have been declared righteous in His sight through what the Lord has done. But that is not the pinnacle of blessing that the New Testament reveals to us. Now, Packer says the greatest blessing the gospel affords is that we're adopted as sons and daughters. Because what happens? Justification, a forensic term, the courtroom, right? Very sterile scene in some ways. We might be pardoned and acquitted of our sins, but we don't think in terms of us then going up to the judge and having a warm hug, right? No, but see, adoption is an intimate term. It's a familial idea. Now the picture is shifted. The context is shifted from the courtroom to what? To the family room with our Father. We as His children. I'm not just a forgiven subject. I'm a son or daughter who's delighted in by my Father God. And what's more, I don't just, you know, Break away, thankful that I'm forgiven, and I hope I'm I'm never in His sight ever again. I'm just thankful that my sins aren't being held against me. No, now in the family room, as sons and daughters of God, as sons and daughters of our Father, what do we have? Access. Freedom in His presence. Communion with Him. Fellowship with Him. The experience of love and affection that proceeds from His soul to ours and our soul to His. At the heart of this idea that God is our Father in heaven. His fatherly care, intimacy, and love, yes, it is also this idea of free and open access. Of course, Jesus does not open up this idea now. But it must be said, how is it that we do in fact enjoy this free and open access to God? It will be through what Jesus came to do to open up a way to God through his own body which would be torn asunder. Through his own blood, he would make a way of open access. And that's why, as he says, it is finished. The curtain is torn in two. Our great high priest says it is finished. And he bears our souls to God now as our heavenly Father. All right, third and final point. What's at the heart of this idea of God as our Father? It's meant to communicate fatherly care, intimacy, and love. It's meant to communicate free and open access, thirdly and finally. It's meant to communicate a sense of God's great power and authority. It's meant to communicate a sense of God's great power and authority. You'll note in verse 9, He is our Father in heaven. His name is hallowed. Pious Jews in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, we're accustomed to thinking of God as being in heaven. And from there, He commanded the universe. He upheld all things by the word of His power. He is the God of ages, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Creator God, the Sustainer God, the Sovereign God. The only potentate, the great king over all, the true God among all the false gods of the world. They would look up to God in the heavens to do for them, to command for them, to deliver them, 
He was their God who is in heaven, the great God above all gods. Now listen to this. This is crucial. Crucial if we're going to get this right. It is precisely this knowledge of God in His transcendent majesty and glory that makes this revelation so powerful, so awesome, and so wonderful for Jesus' disciples. That this God who is in heaven, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose name is holy, who inhabits eternity, this God is my Father. You see that? That's what would have dazzled them. That's what would have overawed them. This God, the great God. I'm to think of Him now as my Father. You see, we miss everything if we miss that. Theologians are accustomed to speaking in terms of God's transcendence and God's imminence. Big theological words. Kids, remember those words, transcendence and imminence. You can impress your parents at lunch if you can remember what they are. What is God's transcendence? Well, it is His height above us. It is His being and existence and glory and majesty and might beyond us. It is that He is altogether other than what we are. He is transcendent. He transcends us. He is the great and awesome and transcendent God. And various attributes of God's person are associated with His transcendence. He's holy. Oh, what a word. He's holy. What does that mean? And one theologian is fond of saying, to say that God is holy is almost the same as saying God is God. It's a hard word to define. What does it mean that God is holy? He's transcendent. He's beyond us. He's set apart from us. He's above us. But theologians will talk also about God's imminence. His imminence. What does that mean? God's imminence is His nearness. Not God high above and separate from us. God near to us. And when speaking about God's imminence, we think often about how God has become imminent in Christ. He's drawn near in His Son. And we are to know Him in intimate ways. And He reveals Himself to us, communicates His heart to us. He reveals Himself to us. God is transcendent. God is imminent. God is great. God is with the lowly. He's near. Now see, it would be a grievous mistake to say, well, yes, God was conceived of as this great and awesome and terrible God to be feared and reverenced in the Old Testament. But you see, now in the New Covenant age, you see, He should be conceived of instead in terms of fatherly eminence and nearness and closeness and familiarity. Friends, to say God is no longer transcendent but is instead imminent is intolerable error. However, to say that the transcendent God is imminent through Jesus Christ and through adoption, that's blessed gospel truth. The great and awesome transcendent God, no less glorious than He was revealed to be in the Old Testament. That same God comes near in His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's the glory of what we're saying to God when we come to Him in prayer. He is our Father in heaven. You must put these two ideas together or it all breaks down. That the great God is our God. The Almighty God is our Father God. The transcendent God is the eminent God who has come near to us in Jesus. This idea, I think, is wonderfully captured uh, in a song we sing. It's a song we'll sing in a little bit. Johnny Harris uh, reminded me of this this week. I was talking about this sermon and what we'd be considering. And he said, oh, that reminds me of all praise to him. And so our song leader, Scott Showalter, very graciously changed the song last minute for me. We say in that song, all praise to him, the God of light who formed the mountains by His might. All praise to Him who names the stars that sing His fame in skies afar. 
All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. That's the thought that would excite and animate and overwhelm these disciples. The great God of galaxies, the God of angel armies, the God of ages past, the God of our fathers. He comes to us as Father to hear us, to receive us, and to invite us into fellowship with Him. We must put these two ideas together if we're to address God aright, our Father who is in heaven. I just say at this point, I do, I do think many in our own context would not hear this designation, our Father in heaven. It, it wouldn't necessarily have the same resonances as it would have had with those disciples. I do think the early Jews were more accustomed of thinking in terms of God's greatness and transcendence than we are in sort of casual 21st century American evangelicalism. Many people dishonor God with very low thoughts of His glory, and they just sort of, in a chummy way, kind of saunter into His presence with no serious or noble or dignified thoughts at all about who they're addressing. They just don't see God as the all-glorious God, the awesome God, the God, if He were to look upon me for a moment outside of His mercy and outside of Christ, could vanquish me, the God to be feared. I just survey any number of the songs that are coming out on Christian radio nowadays is the fear of the Lord a theme that gets much coverage? Or is it more kind of the sentimental and insipid verses of the pop songs? You're a good, good father, and it's who you are, and it's who I am, and you affirm me, and you want me, and you're really, really close to me. Do we have lofty thoughts of God as our Father? I'm tempted to say this is the great error. And so what must we do? We must have our sense of God elevated. We must see God as the thrice holy God. We must come to know Him in the ways He reveals Himself as God Almighty, the great Creator God, the great God of redemption, the great God of armies, the great God of majesty and might, the great transcendent God. That said, in my experience as a pastor, I don't know that that actually is where most people struggle, at least not in this church. Some of us struggle in that area. If we're going to neglect transcendence or imminence, a lot of Christians have no trouble seeing God as great and awesome. But they really struggle seeing Him as a loving Father. That I could be the object of His delight and His affection. That He would see me as His own child. I don't mind telling you, I myself in my Christian life have struggled with this at times. That God, this great and holy and awesome God, could view me as His Son. I don't know if this will help you. I, I was helped in reading John Owen on communion with God. And I'm not necessarily recommending that book, though I would recommend it. It's a great book, but it's the point Owen made that's more important. Owen makes the point that God has revealed His Father. That's how He's revealed Himself. And the impulse to come to him as a child to a father is one that must be undertaken by faith. Isn't that something? That God is our father is part of the gospel revelation. That if we believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we must believe that God is father. It's a new way of thinking about it for me. It wasn't a matter ultimately of my emotions and intuitions and how I felt, but rather just as I exercise faith in Christ to cover me, to forgive me, to atone for my sins, to be my Savior and to bear me to God, I must have faith in all that the gospel reveals, that God is the Father of His children. And friends, that He really does love us. There's no trick here with God. We are indeed His blood-bought children. And we must learn by God's grace and God's help to embrace this full picture in faith. I am not only justified, but I am 
adopted. And I don't honor my father by questioning his love. I don't honor my father by wondering if he's holding out on me. No, he wants me to enter into the fullness of relationship. And by faith, I do it. May God help us to understand all that this means. May we enter into all that we're to experience in this relationship with God as our Father in heaven. The final word I'll say is this. It is the impulses of love, I hope, that lead me to say what I want to say now. I want to be crystal clear. The Bible does not reveal uh, the liberal and progressive doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God. You'll hear it said in pop culture in different ways, yeah, we're all God's children. That is emphatically not so. It actually denigrates who God is as Father. It actually denigrates the blessed doctrine of adoption. God is the Father of His blood-bought children. God is the Father to those to whom he reveals himself in Christ. God is the Father to those who through his Spirit's work repent of their sins, trust in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, death, and resurrection by which he ascended, he says, to my Father and to your Father. If you were here this morning and you are outside the salvation in Jesus Christ, you don't have God as your Father at all. You know God only as judge, who when He comes will come in wrath. When He calls your name to the bar, you will not respond by crying, Abba, Father. You'll cry out instead to the mountains and hills to fall upon you and cover you from the judgment and the wrath that is coming. But listen, friends, today is the day of salvation. And God comes to say, who would be my children? All you who thirst, all you who hunger, all you who wish to be forgiven and saved and loved and brought into my family, it's a universal offer. There's no limit on the number of adoptions. He will bring into his family any who would come. And there's no qualifications. You don't have to plead your record. You don't have to try to push yourself to the front of the line and make sure your profile is better than someone else's profile and that you'll be the one that's chosen for adoption and maybe this one not. No, any can come. And God's will is that you would come, that you would be forgiven, that you would become His own children, His own sons and daughters, forgiven and saved and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And I just ask you, my friend, What are you waiting for? Why would you stand off such a God when love is ready to take you in, to save you, to forgive you, to redeem you? I plead with you. Come to Jesus Christ that your soul may live. Come to God who will be your Father. He will save your soul. Let's pray together. Father, surely in this sermon, the grandeur and the wonder of what it means to be your children, we've probably only scratched the surface. And the limits of our language keep us from expressing all that is in our hearts when we think of being your own children. All of us who are in Christ who have become your sons and daughters, we praise you, Father, for what you've done in justifying us and forgiving us and pardoning us of all our sins, of adopting us into your own family, making us, in your great love, your own children. Father, we pray that you would help us by faith to see you in this way, the way in which you have revealed yourself to us, our Father in heaven. We pray that we would approach the heights and the wonder 
of this name for our God. We pray that it would register with us at the level of our experience, at the level of our deepest feelings, that you are our Father who comes in warmth and intimacy and love, that you are the Father who gives us free and open access, that you are our Father who is all-powerful, great and mighty and awesome. Please, Lord, for your children here, help us to see you in all your fullness as you are revealed in your word and to come to you on these terms, our Father in heaven. Please, Lord, we long to see more brought in. All of us here who are your children say to you, we want more brothers and sisters. We want them from among, even lost people sitting among us now. Please seek and save the lost. Please enlarge this family. Please save them from their sins. Please reveal to them your own heart, your own character, your own person as revealed in the gospel. The God who has sent his only begotten son into the world, moved by love, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would help them to come in. And not just to stand outside looking through the window, but to come in to know the Father's love. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.